Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. Hey, before we start the show today, I just wanted to take a quick moment and say thanks to all of you who've been listening, who've shown your support, who've shared about what we're doing. Every little bit helps. It's Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. And if you want to wish us a Merry Christmas, you can go to harbormedia.com and chip in a few bucks. Like I said, every single little bit helps, and everything is tax deductible as well. So thanks for listening. On with the show. Level's okay? Do you want him to describe what he had for breakfast to get Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, it is in my opinion that the people are intending. It is in my opinion that the people are intending. Never mind the furthermore, the plea is self-defense. Is that good? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> that might be the cold open, actually. So yeah, so again, we'll just sort of talk through your story, the things that you're interested in telling people about. But yeah, let's start at the beginning. Where, where does Greg Thornberry come from? Earth. I've been there before. That's vague. I grew up in Winfield, Pennsylvania, which is a little village bed community outside of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, where my father was an American Baptist pastor, the perfect picture of a country parson adorned with all the virtues of a Christian. So I just have to point out that we're less than a minute into this podcast And we already have references to George Herbert and the monkeys. That can only mean that today's guest is Dr. Gregory Thornberry. I mean, you grew up a preacher's kid. Yeah, it was wonderful. I loved it. I felt this mystical bond with my father because one minute we'd be out in the yard tossing the football and then I would see him behind this, and he had one of those big pulpits, I mean, This is back when people had pulpits, and it was this mighty oak desk that he stood behind, and I actually believed, a la Richard Baxter, that he was doing war between heaven and hell. It was kind of an amazing thing to feel as a kid. It was pretty great. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, we'll hear from Dr. Thornberry. He's the president of the King's College, and we're going to talk about where he comes from, his vision for Christians in the marketplace, his thoughts about what we call cultural engagement, and why he thinks C.S. Lewis may not have been such a big deal. How's that for provocative? Stay with us. I call it the stages of grieving of Francis Schaeffer. It's like that. You're super into Francis Schaeffer, and then you go to college, 
and then you realize he didn't actually read the books he was talking about, and then you get angry, and then you don't want to ever talk about Francis Schaeffer again. And then in the final analysis, you kind of come back to, I kind of like that guy. Yeah, so you went on that journey. That was your... Well, so uh, my, my journey was a little bit different. I preached my first sermon when I was 14 years old. Within just a couple of years, I had become a boy wonder preacher. The boy preacher, it was like Marjo. For listeners who don't know what Marjo is. Marjo was a faith healer and traveling evangelist back in the 1970s who infamously turned from baby face to heel. He was actually an atheist, but he was sort of putting on this show the whole time. And he, back in 1973 or four, there was a famous documentary on, from an atheist perspective, he actually goes out on the road as this fiery healer and revivalist saying, this is all really just for the cameras. But he started out as like this boy wonder preacher and old ladies would touch his hanky. That stuff didn't go on. I didn't try to heal anybody. (laughs) I do remember the first advice my dad ever gave me about preaching, though. He said, son, there's two rules you got to remember about preaching. I thought he would say something about, you know, make sure you keep Christ at the center, make sure that the point of the text is your point. He didn't say anything like that. He said, number one, the brain can only contain what the bottom can endure. And number two, (laughs) if you can't strike oil in 20 minutes or less, quit boring people. Hmm. Pretty good advice. It is. I wish more preachers took it. Me too. So did you want to be a preacher then? Yes and no. It was something I was good at. Uh, What I realized is I was good standing on my feet talking to people in public. That didn't mean I was going to be a a pastor. But that's what you kind of think because that's what people say. You know, you have little old ladies coming up and saying, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. I mean, I'll be honest, that was a lot of pressure. But I'll tell you what, there were two movements that sort of changed the way I thought about my faith from polar opposite sides of the spectrum. One, I started playing guitar. My dad is a multi-instrumentalist. He's a great musician. And he uh, taught me how to play like folk style guitar. But then I, you know, I want to play rock and roll. So we found this guitar instructor who was kind of a local legend. I sat down in the chair and he looked at me and he said, are you a Christian? And I was like, oh no. Like, you know, there's a super cool guy that I want to get along with. And I said, yes. And it turns out that he was, I mean, he was like into the real stuff. Like when you're talking about sympathetic magic. I mean, he had been doing it and then was like knocked off of his donkey Saul of Tarsus, like converted. And we would go see people that he knew. And like, I saw demon possession and I saw, I saw strange stuff. And I remember bringing in Mike Warnke's book. I don't know if you know who that is. Mike Warnke appeared on the Christian scene in the 1970s with a book called The Satan Seller. For the next 20 or so years, he traveled around the country, speaking at churches, selling books and tapes about his experiences as a drug-addled satanic priest who led and participated in hideous rituals as a part of a satanic coven. In 1992, it was revealed that pretty much everything he'd claimed, including all of the satanic ritual abuse, was fake. 
but I brought in Mike Warnke's book, you know, where he sort of gives his memoir, Being a Satanist. And Bill read that book and he said, this guy's a phony. This guy wasn't ever a Satanist. Right. I said, yeah, he is. He's like the most famous ex-Satanist in America. He said, well, I don't know what he was, but this is baloney because this isn't the real stuff. So anyway, I, I kind of like saw that world. And then I went to college and I had um, a really winsome, persuasive, articulate, warm professor who had me read all of the apparatus of higher criticism of the New Testament, and uh, just everything started to unravel. And reading, apologies if anyone's offended by this, but, you know, like reading Josh McDowell and Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis did not help me at all. But that's when I did discover Carl Henry, because I was studying philosophy too, and when I read the first volume of God, Revelation, and Authority, the first line of it is, the central crisis of the modern age is a growing cynicism as to whether or not the human being can hear any sure word from God. I was like, wow, that's me right now. So I began to sort of find my way back from that. At that point, was academia sort of calling? No, I did not. I did not ever want to be an academic. I wanted to be an evangelist. I wanted to be like a Francis Schaeffer. That's kind of what I thought I was going to do. I only kind of backed into higher education unwittingly. I think Greg's story, especially of being a 14-year-old preacher, is like a lot of stories. A young person takes their faith seriously, and suddenly they're elevated to this big platform. What happened a little later in his life shows another side of the struggle within the Christian world, that because of the seriousness of his faith, he found it hard to imagine another pathway for his vocation other than ministry. I asked him why he thinks this kind of pressure exists. I think people are scared. I think people are scared of their own things that go bump in the night spiritually. And it's so much easier to outsource it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easier to outsource it to somebody that you think can... The, pow- the idea of substitutionary anything is a powerful idea. And if there's somebody that you think is sort of bright and young and capable and they seem to have a grip on their own faith, then it just like that guy ought to be up there because the rest of us don't feel so good about it. I think that's a lot of it. And just for the for what it's worth, my dad totally discouraged me from it. What was his reasoning for that? He was very much sort of almost existentialist about preaching. He was Spurgeonian. Hmm. He was like, if you don't have such a fire in your bones to get up there and preach, then you've got to do something else. You almost have to feel sick Hmm. not to do it. That's good advice. Uh, One of the things I've known about you, one of the things you said to me is that you take joy in trying to help people find their way vocationally. Yes. When did you realize, oh, I'm good at this or I care about this? I, I think it started as a little kid reading Pilgrim's Progress. 
I always loved the interpreter standing by the wicket gate saying this way to the celestial city. So I always sort of wanted to be that because I do think that people have a lot of suppressed things. They do things for all kinds of reasons that are not original to them. And I did take a lot of joy in helping guide people into their paths, whatever it was. And it was also kind of a cheap way of getting friends (laughs) because a lot of those people are my friends today. I have to admit, I'm one of these people. After 15 years of ministry at a church I helped plant, I began to sense that God was inviting me into something new. And that led me to starting Harbor Media and doing the very thing that I'm doing right now. Greg was instrumental in helping me think through that, imagining other possibilities. And I think part of the reason he's good at that is because he had to make that journey himself. Toward the end of seminary, and I was thinking about taking a a church position, and I was kind of surprised that the people all around me said, no, you, you should do this. And I'm glad they did because I would have been a terrible pastor probably. <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> Um, because I would have had too many flashbacks to my childhood where I don't think I could have ever done it better than my mom and dad did it. They were just so pure. I mean, my mom read me passages from the Puritans and I mean Robert Murray McShane and the story of John Newton at breakfast over bacon and eggs and I would feel like I was never able to maybe live up to that. That's why actually really it makes me mad sometimes when everybody, and you know, rightfully so, makes fun of Joel Osteen. But at the end of the day, what his story is really about is like somebody that got shoved forward and had to take a job they didn't want to do. His dad died of a heart attack and everybody's like looking at him. So I think you, it begins in sympathy. <laughs> right, right. Um, You're probably going to cut that out, aren't you? <laughs> heck no. Heck no. no this guy good. has sympathy for Joel Osteen? Yeah, no, I what mean... What the heck? He's not reformed anymore. <laughs> what I think is interesting about Osteen is he becomes one of those characters, almost like a, in the same way as, as Kim Kardashian where they become an icon, but that means they become two-dimensional. And, you know, what you just said is is so right. Like, that's a human being with a, with a strange story who yeah. found himself in a strange place. Yeah. And is making do. Yeah, I think <laughs> um, that's right. And it's probably, a, it's probably a tremendous burden on his soul to do what he's doing, um, even while what he's doing is strange and unhelpful and, you know we wouldn't send people to his church necessarily. Yeah. In 2013, Greg became the president of the King's College in New York City. It's a liberal arts college with about 500 students located right in the heart of the financial district. In their mission statement, they talk about wanting to prepare students for careers that shape and lead strategic public and private institutions. Evangelicals give a lot of talk to, well, we need to engage the culture, but they often do that from within a a tight Christian subculture you're on Wall Street and you're in New York City and you're, you're taking these students and trying to actually equip them to do that. I'd love to hear you just describe some of that and 
because I think it really ties in with some of the other things we've talked about in terms of your your own vocation and your joy you take in guiding others. Well, thanks for asking about that. In a similar podcast interview I was doing last year with Timothy George, he sort of set it up just like you did. And he said, you know, you're a Christian college on Wall Street. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, that's different than most Christian colleges and universities, most of which are located about 50 miles from any known sin. In other words, you find where culture is and then try to get as far away from it or or maybe proximate to culture, but as one provost of a prominent Christian evangelical institution said to me, we've pitched our tent with uh, tar, both inside and out. In other words, it's not really our mission to do that. And so, yeah, we're doing it a little bit differently at King's because by definition, there is no bubble. There can't be. You are, you know, on the subway, you're at the Met, you are juxtaposed to employers and internships and other kids from Ivy League schools. And it's simply impossible to sort of insulate yourself in the way that, you know, most institutions like that do. And I think it's, I think it's really important because, as you said, there are a lot of people who professionally trade in culture talk. And I think uh, it's about as bad as the people that um, trade in um, think tanks. Unpack that a little more. Well, I mean, uh, you know... You're calling out the influence peddlers. If you're wondering who that voice is chiming in from the background, that's actually David Dark. He was sitting in the room with us when we conducted the interview, and I think on this point he just couldn't help himself. You're calling out the influence peddlers. They talk about culture like it's something over there in the next county, and that somehow we have uh, this positional superiority gazing down into it like, you know, uh, Gandalf into Helm's Deep. I just don't think that's true because, uh, you know, you talk to them afterwards and they're watching the same TV shows and listening to the same records and, you know, it's it's all the same milieu. And so I don't think there's a lot to be gained by talking about it. Um, one of my friends, William McKinley Blackford IV, who lives in Louisville, um, or, or used to, I think he's still there. He's a pastor there. He used to say, you need to turn your hallelujah into a do you And that's why we're in New York City. Like, I, don't talk to me about cultural influence. Go into Goldman Sachs. Be at the New York Times. Do good work. See if they can recognize you for being, you know, to having the having the chops. That's why we our journalism program is named after John McCandlish Phillips, one of the great investigative reporters of the 20th century at the New York Times, who was everybody knew he was a Christian, but he he was had an intuitive way of breaking stories and other things. 
So, you know, that, that's, that's what I think is important. And I just, at our convocation, you know, this week, I told the incoming class, Joseph was uh, in, in Egypt, but he did not intend to save anybody. <laughs> I mean, he didn't think of himself as a cultural transformer. He just was there and he was really good at what he did. And then Shazam, it just so happens that he was in the right place at the right time. What Joseph was, I think it's Genesis 39:22, when he was in the jail, he was a gamer. And it says, if anything happened in the jail, basically if anything got done, this is NTT, New Thornburg translation, if anything got done in that jail, it got done because Joseph did it. So that's what we're trying to do. This has been a consistent theme on our show this season. Brett Lott talked about it, Gabe Lyons, this idea of doing work that's good enough and essential enough to make us indispensable to the community around us. And that's kind of a counter-narrative to a lot of what we hear about Christians in the public sphere, this idea that Christians are being marginalized and that they're being pushed out. Last fall, around the time Greg and I talked, there was an article in Harper's by Alan Jacobs called The Watchman. In it, Jacobs asks what became of Christian intellectuals. Why aren't there people like C.S. Lewis shaping the public conversation today like they did a generation or two ago? Jacobs more or less places the blame at the feet of Christians, saying that the answer to that question is, there's just not people doing that kind of work, that caliber of work, like there was a generation ago. I asked Greg what he thought about that question. I agree with Alan Jacobs, mostly with what he said. The only thing that I would disagree with is the word disappearance. It never existed. Like he's talking about, wow, Reinhold Niebuhr and C.S. Lewis were on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, but who wrote those articles? It was Whitaker Chambers <laughs> wrote those articles. People forget this. There was somebody already on their team that was sort of focusing on it. And Lewis, I mean, when I studied at Oxford in 97 and 98, nobody cared about Lewis at Oxford. He didn't have any influence on Oxford, barely any influence at Cambridge and got a chair towards the very end. Like, here I am, like, I'm, this is like, I'm probably going to get struck by a lightning bolt, like, you know, to say C.S. Lewis wasn't that big a deal. But he's a bigger deal for us than he was in the culture that he lived in, if you take my meaning. Bold words, right? Maybe C.S. Lewis wasn't such a big deal. But there's an important point here. We might not have had C.S. Lewis or Reinhold Niebuhr in the public conversation if there weren't Christians inside places like Time Magazine telling the world why their work mattered. And that, it seems, shapes the vision that Greg has for Kings. Rather than hoping to get lightning in a bottle with a Titanic figure like Lewis or Chesterton or Niebuhr, we need Christians inside the institutions that shape our culture. We need more Whitaker Chambers. It's a vision that should expand our sense of what's possible and what's plausible for Christians in the marketplace. Most of us know that we aren't C.S. Lewis and we aren't Reinhold Niebuhr. And truthfully, we might not even be a Whitaker Chambers either, but work like his Work coming from the inside of existing institutions and media outlets is much more approachable and much more easy to imagine for ourselves. So rather than seeing ourselves outside the culture speaking into it, Christians should try to imagine the ways they can work and serve culture from the inside out. I asked Greg to describe what he thinks Christian cultural engagement should look like. 
building things, seeing things that are not done and doing them, or things that are not done well uh, and fixing them, fixing broken systems, innovation. For example, one of my favorite illustrations of this is Bill Lear, who grew up in the Moody Church. His mother walked out on him and his dad when he was just a little shaver. And his dad told him success is in direct proportion to effort. And he saw that in the Moody Church. The Moody Church was very engaged with job skills training. Like, so yes, there was evangelism, but the other side of the church was Sunday school was actually about literacy. I don't even know why we have Sunday school anymore in, in so far as we do. The original purpose of it was to teach people to read who couldn't read. Is that going on on Sunday morning? That was the original purpose of it, but there was job skill training and that kind of thing at the Moody Church. And so Bill Lear just had this attitude, like if he wanted it done, he had to figure out how to do it himself. So he developed uh, miniaturization and amplification systems. So all of your great uh, booming rock shows that you've played, Mike Cosper. Thanks, Bill Lear. He developed a lot of the PA systems, and then he didn't like the way travel was happening, and so he developed the Learjet, and he wanted to listen to music on the Learjet, so he developed the infinite, the Lear infinite loop tape system that became the eight-track tape. That's what I think is... I think it's actually making stuff that people want and need rather than talking about it. That's like a, a real famous Seth Godin quote when somebody asked him, uh, what's the key to success in business? He says, sell something that people want to buy. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah, and it's, it's like Christian cultural influence, do things that people find helpful. Given that definition... Do you think that all this talk about secularism, marginalization, all of that, do you think it's overblown? Or do you think that that's still going, that still threatens the Christian's place? I think that when I, when we use the term secularism or secularization, you know, it's a term that Peter Berger invented to describe the, you know, sanit sanitization of public life from the dominant symbols and language of religion. So it was a descriptive thing. This is, you know, what's what's happening. But, you know, in his most recent book, he sort of apologizes for coining the term because he says all that's really happening is now people have a choice. They have an opportunity to make the case for what they believe. Before it was built in, you were born into the Catholic Church, you were born into a particular kind of view of economics, and now it's sort of all bets are off. So people that have a religious worldview being denied uh, in, in a way, yeah, sure, absolutely. People are choosing something differently. And I think that the Christian community isn't used to being told no. That's all, that's what it is. It's not as though there was this penumbra of religion and now it's gone. As David Dark would tell you, it's religion all the way down. It's elephants all the way down. Everything's religious. Religion is the belief in something or other as divine. And something that's divine has the status of not being dependent on anything else. 
Everybody has that, so it's religious in some very profound way. So I'm with you, but there are tides shifting when it comes to the question of like religious liberty. Oh, sure. And public versus private faith. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. But what it is about is about aggression and force. It's a worldview of statism. I mean, there's a very uh, famous article in the week that we're recording this interview where a Christian cultural commentator said, change your mind about these things. You know, we want you to come voluntarily, but if you don't come voluntarily, well, it'll come at the point of a gun. It's about aggression and force. But that's a worldview of statism that's been growing for a long time. It, the difference is the state used to be more conducive, and now it's increasingly not. So then back to the other question then, does that threaten the Christians' opportunities in, in the marketplace? No question. There's no question. The, the problem is, is that it's going to be more and more difficult to be institutionally prominent, Right it's going to have to look a little more conspiratorial and that's the big that's the big shift it's going to be hard for institutions to survive and flourish the people themselves would be christians themselves would be just fine especially if they're doing good work right yeah so what do you hope uh, what do you hope the legacy of kings is and and sort of your legacy and and influence there over the next 5 10 15 years. Well, I mean, the, the legacy is, you know, pointing to Eliza Oman, who's now in the cast of Hamilton. It's um, Aaron Craig, who produced a, you know, a great film for Sufjan. It's, you know, the, the, you know, the kid going into Goldman Sachs and starting a Bible study. It's, uh, it looks like that. It's one one by one by one. I actually think that I uh, happen to agree with Peter Thiel that much of what college is about is utterly worthless and actually narrows down options. That's why I like what we're doing in New York City because people can prototype and experiment with all different kinds of things and yes, I'm glad that they're reading Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas while they're trying to figure that out. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. We're posting links to some of Greg's writing and some of his lectures in our show notes. I'd encourage you not to miss his lecture titled Cain, Abel, and Kanye. We'll also link to some of his articles and his book on Amazon, which is about recovering a vision for evangelicalism that is robust intellectually and active culturally. Thanks for listening. We're going to take the next couple of weeks off for Christmas and for New Year's. If you haven't already, check out our archives and listen to our other episodes. They'd be great accompaniment on your rides to your in-laws this weekend. 
Stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. But first, if you want more of Harbor Media and cultivate it in your life, then please consider going to harbormedia.com slash donate and shipping in a few bucks. This episode was written and produced by me. It was recorded and mixed by Mark Owens at resonaterecordings.com. Special thanks to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffey. Thanks also, once again, to Dan Darling and Elizabeth Graham at the ERLC and some of the other folks there that helped to make these interviews possible, including this one. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Links to their music are in our show notes. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. So come back after the new year when my guest will be Latifah Phillips. Latifah is the lead singer for Page CXVI. You may be familiar with their hymns records. She's also the brains behind Moda Spira. She's a record producer, and she has a great story to tell. Somebody walks in fall semester to her dorm, like like the common area, and says, hey, he wants to go on a blind date with an Arabic prince and his roommate. Um, she thought, since he was so proper and formal, that he was the prince for like the first like three dates they were on. See you in a couple weeks.